Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Trump saga continues and Richard, we are forced by events to recur every couple of weeks to the legal controversies around the Trump administration. There's a lot new to discuss since we last talked about it. I, I want to start you here. There have been reports that the president is growing more and more interested, more and more curious about the pardon power, the pardon power and some speculation that he may even ultimately consider pardoning himself. Richard, is that something that a president can do? Well, I mean, this is an interesting question. Fortunately, we've had a constitution around for 225 years or so, and we've never had to answer it. Uh, if you look at the pardon power as written, it simply says the president shall have the power to issue pardons, and it doesn't exclude him from that particular capacity. And more importantly, since it's a power, it's not something that he exercises in conjunction with what Congress or the courts want to do. It is something which he can do completely unilaterally. And so the question then always asked is just how absolute is a stated absolute power? And there are two kinds of constraints on this. One of them is the question as to whether or not the president can pardon somebody whom he knows to be guilty because he's taken a bribe in exchange for what's going on. And there are a number of people, myself included, who says what they meant to do was to give him a chance to correct the excesses existing in the political system with very harsh sanctions. It wasn't designed to essentially allow him to be more corrupt than anybody else was. There is therefore some notion that it's a vague, indefinite, uncertain fiduciary duty, and if he goes beyond the limits, he's in trouble. Now, if you take that particular attitude and you're worried about conflicts of interest, the self-pardon, of course, is exactly the worst thing that you could possibly imagine. The president commits all sorts of mayhem in office, is about to be resigned, he's about to be impeached, and then what he does is he decides to pardon himself and to walk away from the entire mess. And I think the legal authority on the point is scant. The commentators are beginning to talk about it with ever greater insistence. And there is, I think, again, the same kind of ambiguity about this. Is there an implied limitation on an express textual power? And it's not as though you're doing this at random. What you're doing is you're saying the president's a fiduciary. Let's look at other fiduciaries like people who are corporate presidents and so forth and ask whether or not they can do whatever they want. And it turns out that basically the usual distribution of powers is twofold. If in fact you're acting with respect to somebody where you have no particular interest, it's a relatively lax test. You have to show that there's something reasonable about what's being done and it's done in good faith. The reasonableness part is objective and is designed to make sure that you can't believe in hallucinations and silly things and sane people won't do it. So it's a backstop against the good faith judgment, which essentially means there are arguments to be made both ways. We give the president the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but generally, if it turns out that the president does have an interest and a self-pardon is shortly that case, there's a much higher standard of review, which is normally approved appropriate in the corporate context. And so the question of whether or not there's a fair and reasonable and correct answer, which becomes the corporate test, carries over, is again part of the constitutional unknown. I very much hope that this thing doesn't come to this. If it does, there will be endless complications about this. How thorough is the pardon? What does it cover? Does the pardon exclude him from committing crimes under state law, which might be brave against him? And I think the answer to that question is no. Uh, so one of the 
the blessings of this situation is the president does something which is abusive. The Senate is not prepared to impeach. After he's out of office, he is subject to criminal prosecution, in my view. But the states are outside the federal constitutional architecture, and therefore he may be vulnerable there uh, for some state court crime that he committed. Uh, God knows which state, and God knows whether or not there's any state action that can be done. And so what happens is when you have sane people in government, impossible conundrums like this are never to be faced and to answer. It's only when you get somebody like Trump, whose own bizarre behaviors are so extreme at this particular point, that the impossible becomes the plausible. The pardon power feels like a bit of a constitutional outlier and that it's one of the few areas where we see the founders giving the president a relatively free hand in, in domestic matters. Does, does the constitutional design here make sense to you? Is this a power you would have given the president? Well, I think the answer is I would have given it to the president in the traditional case, which is that if there's an excess in the criminal justice system, if the president can only exercise the pardon if he goes to Congress or if he goes back to the courts, he's going to find that he's going to be completely paralyzed and can't do anything. And so what you're doing is you're relying on his good judgment to avoid abuse on the other part. What's interesting about this is most presidents don't want the power at that level. Uh, you'll recall that Mark Rich was pardoned on the last day in office by Bill Clinton, and he had given about $450,000 to some political Democratic ally of the president or some obvious self-interest. He took an incredible amount of abuse for that. And most presidents in then, what they do is they set up a board of pardons inside the White House, and this board is given an amount of fairly extensive powers. They process these claims. Remember, they're in the thousands. Some of them are drug cases, some of them are financial cases, some of them are other kinds of cases and so forth. Everybody has a tale of woe and miscarriage of justice. The president couldn't do it by himself. And so he needs this board for two reasons. One is to sort the cases out, the frivolous from the serious, and also to give him some measure of political protection by saying, look, I've had this reviewed by somebody else. Now, to the extent that the president follows his own institutional arrangement, the problem is self-curing. You put this board there. He follows their advices. He doesn't disagree with them except in rare cases. No pardon board is going to recommend a self-pardon. And so at that point, he's a complete outlier and it's much more easy to go after him if he flouts the standard procedure that he and every other president have followed. So I don't think there's anything fatally wrong with the constitutional structure. There is a kind of an inevitable truth. If you want to stop one kind of abuse, absolutely, you open the path up to another kind of abuse. One of the things that we do know about the pardon power is when that pardon board or anybody else asks the Justice Department to intervene, it's almost impossible to get them to confess error, to say that the sentence was too harsh, that the evidence was too weak. They're always going to say we did the right thing. And so the point about the pardon board is to give a counterweight to the organized powers inside the Department of Justice. I don't think there's anything wrong with the institutional arrangements, uh, but there's no set of institutions that are going to be able to handle Donald Donald Trump when he's on a roll. One of the things that strikes me in some of the analyses I'm reading is the implication that the issuance of a pardon, particularly in the hypothetical that we're discussing with Trump, implies the underlying guilt of the person being pardoned. Now, that certainly may be true in certain instances as a matter of perception, but does it carry that connotation as a legal matter? 
Well, the answer is to most people, it surely does. There is the question about pre-pardons before somebody are charged with any kind of offense at all. And it's clear that you can do that. I think the Ford case of Nixon, I don't think he'd actually been formally charged anywhere when he received the uh, the pardon. Um, and you pay, if you're Gerald Ford, a very heavy price. My guess is one of the reasons he lost to Carter, generally a weak candidate, or was that people thought that the Nixon pardon was terrible. One of the reasons it's terrible is they thought that Nixon did terrible things including obstruction of justice. Another reason that people might have thought, not very credible in my view, is that Ford was pardoning Nixon so that nobody would be able to take an examination of anything that Gerald Ford did when that came up. I'm sure the happiest man about the part, apart from Nixon, was probably Spiro Agnew, who surely would have been in the line of fire. Uh, So there is a very, very um, heavy political price that's being paid for all of this stuff. And there's just nothing much that you can do about these kinds of anomalies that start to arise. So what's going to happen in the case with Trump, if he starts to engage in this behavior, there'll be a very large amount of foreplay warning and so forth, which will be a lot of forces coming against it. And indeed, the mere fact that he announced this means that other people are going to start to take very strong peace positions on this. Two of my colleagues, Dan Hemmel and Eric Posner, already have a piece that came out in the New York Times saying, I can't do this. And there are other things you can't do as well. And they've got a long academic paper coming up. You get people like Jeffrey Tubin, who is semi-hysterical oftentimes, who will certainly weigh in on this. So the mere fact that our friend Trump has raised this issue makes it highly likely that people are going to try to hem him in politically uh, so that he doesn't try to do this ultimate thing. And if he does do it, it's anybody's guess as to how the judges or the Senate or the Congress or the House will respond to it. This is terra incognita. This is where we are always with Trump. The other development here that we should talk about is the president's treatment of his attorney general, Jeff Sessions. The president recently gave an interview in the New York Times where he said he was disappointed in Sessions for recusing himself in the Russia investigation and he said he wouldn't have appointed him if he knew that that was going to happen. He subsequently made similar remarks in the Wall Street Journal. He's been beating up on Sessions on Twitter. And the speculation has been that he'd prefer if Sessions just resigned, although he doesn't seem inclined to fire him himself, at least thus far. So a lot of different ways we could go with this, Richard. But let's start with the underlying question. Does Trump have a legitimate gripe? Does it do him a disservice to have the attorney general recuse himself in this case? Well, I mean, it certainly doesn't quote-unquote a disservice in the sense that he's worse off, but I think it's pretty clear that the real mistake that both Sessions and Trump made was to know, given the erratic nature of Trump during the campaign, that you could actually appoint him as attorney general when he'd been active in the campaign and hope that the stuff that happened in his campaign capacity would not slop over into his AG capacity. And so I thought that this appointment for that ground was just a mistake. There's a kind of a basic rule about potential conflicts of interest. There's only one guy who has the conflict of interest and a thousand guys who can do the job. You don't go to the one guy who's going to pose potential problems for you I think Chessens wanted the job. He thought that it wouldn't break that way. Trump, of course, would be oblivious to the whole thing. But it was a joint mistake in judgment on the part of both of them. But then when the stuff starts to come up, I don't think that our friend Sessions had any choice. The Wall Street Journal had a nice editorial this morning laying out what they thought the grounds were. Uh, there are many people who said, well, they weren't doing a criminal investigation. It's 
Therefore, he could have stayed on. It was only counterintelligence. But remember, this was a Mr. Comey and everybody else. And my view is that Sessions was correct to say that once they start an investigation, it may turn criminal. And so, therefore, I just cannot have any particular part of it. But, of course, this had huge ramifications because in the way in which James Comey paid footsie, that is, did not reveal his true colors in that particular you know, memorandum, which was leaked through a third party, it meant that it was much easier to point Robert Mueller than it would have been if Comey had already been on record as being really strongly anti-Trump in this particular fashion. Now that Mueller's in, I think it's clear to say that he is conflicted in my judgment. He's too close to Rosenstein and too close to Comey, who's going to be a sort of a principal witness in this thing. And so my own view about it is that Mueller should have quit out of this particular situation and that Rosenstein should have followed exactly the same rule that Trump should have followed. There were a thousand people who could run a competent investigation. You don't pick somebody with close ties to the FBI where the conflicts could emerge. And in this case, they emerged very heavily. Now, I think Trump's behavior, having made the mistake himself, is just simply abusive. He's trying to force Sessions to quit. My hope and pray that Sessions will stay in, notwithstanding the fact that I disagree with him on a lot of things having to do with drugs and forfeiture and immigration. But you can't run a banana republic, which is what the president is trying to do on that. So you force him to fire. Now, in fact, if Trump does fire, we get other complications. He has to appoint somebody. And if he tries to appoint somebody, he's going to have to get the vote of the Senate. And there's just going to be a terrible brawl because no matter who he appoints, the appointment will be tainted because it will be made by Donald J. Trump. That's all it needs at this point to take God himself and to put him under the microscope before a very suspicious bipartisan situation in both houses of Congress. I mean, so to me... This is, this is really an extremely difficult kind of situation uh, to deal with. So I think you have to basically kind of bail out of the whole thing and, and start over again. And I think Sessions should keep his peace. I think the president should shut his mouth. In fact, I think virtually everybody in the Republican Party believes that he's gone bonkers at this particular point in time. And the real question is whether or not he'll be able to keep his own party with him uh, when it comes to the political periods that are going forward. And who knows what's going on on that? I mean, on a good day, Trump could put forward a sensible proposal. The stuff that came out today about potential tax reform was, for the most part, pretty well considered, I think. They got rid of the cross-border taxes, which was the right thing to do. So you just don't want to have these endless kinds of distractions. I think the correct answer at this point is the president, Mr. Sessions, are basically saddled with this kind of inquiry. And the reason why I think the president is so upset is my guess that the likelihood of collusion between anybody in the Trump campaign, including the amateur Donald Trump Jr. and the Russians, is close to zero. And so they're running an investigation for all sorts of political reasons. You're gearing up this huge staff. The president is rightly outraged at Comey, who was never prepared to go public on the one point that Trump really cared about, he was not a subject to the investigation, even though Lod knows he went public on everything else. So this is just a very bad play. The president is a sucker. Every time somebody puts a red flag in front of him, he jumps for it. He creates a bigger hole for himself, gets madder, and then we just continue the cycle over again. I don't think he could last four years if he continues to behave like that. It's just going to be to the point where everybody will confront him in a dark room and said, for God's sake, go. 
So final question, Richard. This may be another of those red flags. There has been speculation and based on the reporting, this is supposedly something that the president himself has mused about, that if he were to get rid of the attorney general, that would be just the start of a process that concludes with the ouster of Robert Mueller as as the special counsel. So let's play out that hypothetical. What are the limits of the president's power, if any, to get Mueller out of that job? Well, I mean, if you had done this immediately before anything had done without this fiasco, the answer is I think the president could have instructed Rosenstein to fire him and take the political consequences. And he doesn't have to appoint anybody else. But now, if what the president does is fire session, then tries to make a recess appointment, he will find that he will be blocked from that because what the Democrats will do is what the Republicans did the last time around. They will never let the Senate go into recess over the summer, so he can't make that appointment. At this point, Rosenstein, then the deputy, now becomes the acting attorney general, which is completely unpalatable to the president. So I think, in fact, the only way he could get the resource appointment is to really run the risk of taking illegal actions, which will be challenged by a thousand different people in one form or another. I think the best thing that he has to do is to learn leave bad enough alone. Don't make it worse. But his reaction is to lash out at everybody, uh, to make them all complicit in some kind of vast conspiracy against the solely virtuous and unique Donald Trump. And so this is a man who every time he does something like this and threatens and blusters, now he's making the obstruction charge more credible. Because it's not just a question of the things that happened back in March. It's the question of how this entire sequence is starting to play out as the president becomes more adamant, more coercive, and more abusive with respect to people. Somebody can say, well, this is an effort to pervert the course of justice. And it's completely perverse and corrupt. That's the magic word, corrupt, because of the erratic way in which it's undertaken. I mean, the president needs to go to charm school. And my view about him at this particular point in his life, where he is and who he he's been, is that he's basically incorrigible. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember that you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. You can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.